morning, everybody. It's good to see you guys. Welcome to Portico Church Arlington. My name is Nate Wagner. It's great to be here with you this morning. We are continuing our little mini-series on Renew. And we're doing this, well, because a lot of us are tired. A lot of us are um, bored. A lot of us are kind of in a haze of melancholy, maybe a haze of despair or uncertainty. And the Christian faith has resources for people in all of those various conditions. And those resources historically are called the means of grace. And just what that is, really quickly as a reminder, a means of grace is a vehicle by which God delivers Christ to his people. So it's important to remember that. It's not Christ, it's not grace itself, but it's a means of grace. And it's important to remember that because I was thinking about last week, it can be tempting to come here and to hear about these different means of grace or these different practices of the Christian faith and then kind of leave in some type of despair because you're like, oh, I'm not doing that, I'm not doing it right, I'm a failure And that is basically, you're confusing that for grace itself. And so you're like, if I'm not doing it, then I must be outside of God's grace. And that is not at all how it works. We're going to talk about that today. But instead, this is an encouragement to meet the Lord where he has promised to meet us. It's an encouragement for all of us in the Christian life. We actually have resources to go to God and to be nourished by him, to be encouraged by him. And so that's what it means to um, participate in the means of grace and to partake of them. And today we are looking at sacraments. So the sacraments as a means of grace. And what the sacraments do is they orient us to the reality and experience of God's grace. They orient us to the reality and the experience of God's grace. This is really important, and it's really important because for many people, Christianity is very disorienting. So whether you came to faith kind of radically, or you're in the process of that now, and kind of like the floor under your feet is shifting, and you're like, I don't know what to do, but I feel all this stuff, all of these different convictions, and these different beliefs are starting to kind of come alive in me, and I don't know what to do, well, this is going to orient you to God's grace. It's going to normalize your experience. It's going to bring you into the universal community of God's people and how we continuously experience God's grace. But you can also be disoriented by familiarity. So maybe you grew up in the church, and you never really knew a day where you didn't believe in Jesus. And you just have been doing that for week after week after week. But then all of a sudden, you kind of get to this place where you're like, I don't even know what I'm doing anymore. Sometimes that happens to me when I'm driving. This might be weird. I don't know. But I'll be driving like home on a very familiar road, and all of a sudden, it's like I got turned into the upside down. And I'm like, where am I? And I'm like right by my house. But it's this disorientation of familiarity. It's like my brain goes on autopilot because I just know where I am so much 
that I forget where I am. And so that happens in the Christian life as well. I've experienced both of those things. And so the sacraments are going to help kind of ground you. They're going to help nail you to something that's concrete, that's tangible, that's going to work through your senses. And it does all of that to bring you the same gospel that you hear and believe. It's the same thing that gets communicated to you in the sacraments as in the word. So the word and the sacraments, they go together. They really go together. And if you try to separate them, it's going to end in disorder. It's going to end in some type of kind of wrong turn. And you're not actually going to meet God where he has promised to meet you. And so I was thinking about this. I've been thinking about this a lot because if you are aware of this, well, then you'll know what I'm talking about. If you're not, then just don't stay unaware of it. Um, but all of a sudden in Christian circles right now, the word revival is getting thrown around a lot. And like it's getting thrown around so much to where it's like, I don't even know what that means anymore. And I think a lot of people who are saying it, they don't either. Is it like just a continuous worship service that never ends? Is it kind of like something that we do? Is it a meeting that we have? Is it something we plan? Is it an outpouring of the Spirit? And I think oftentimes it's all of those things happening, and we just have no ability to actually understand what's actually going on. But here's what I know, because I've seen it, is that there are people who then become the aftermath of these things. And when you go to one of these really powerful experiences where people are coming to faith, people are experiencing God in fresh and powerful ways, well, guess what, guys? It ends. Revivals end. That's kind of what it means for it to be a revival. Is It's like a finite period of time. Now, what we need to be is we need to be a place that receives people who have been disoriented by God. We need to be a place where we are constantly seeking to be disoriented by God and reoriented to the everyday, ordinary life of living and walking out our faith with God. Something that we can do and still work. Something that we can do and still go to class. Something that we can do and still have a family so that you don't have to quit all of those things and go up to a mountaintop. But no, it's earthy. It comes to us and God meets us because as that psalm said that we recited this morning, he knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. He knows that we are limited. And so the sacraments are God working through ordinary things to create extraordinary results. And it happens over time. Well, what are sacraments? I've been saying that a lot. What are they? Well, there's debate about this. So in the Roman Catholic Church, they've identified seven sacraments. I know some of them. I'll probably mess it up if I try and say them all. But they say, hey, there's actually seven sacraments. And so the church teaches that there are seven but the Roman Catholic Church is also saying that the teaching of the church has the same authority as what is revealed in Scripture. And so only two of the sacraments 
that the Roman Catholic Church says are sacraments are actually explicitly commanded in Scripture to be done by the church in an ongoing way that brings blessing. And those are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so historically, that's kind of been a marker of what churches do. What do you practice as a sacrament? If you practice seven sacraments, well, that is tied to the Roman Catholic Church. If you practice two, then you're in the Protestant tradition. But even within that, there's all kinds of diversity. And what I would say is for us in the U.S., it's really kind of like this Roman Catholic version of there being seven sacraments and a confusion of the sacraments for the grace that the sacraments actually supposed to communicate. So that's on one side. A lot of us grew up maybe in Roman Catholic settings where you experience that. But the other side is kind of a reaction to that. And even though we would say, yes, we know like baptism and the Lord's Supper, the practice, the emphasis has really kind of like neglected and diminished the sacraments. So that it's kind of like seven or nothing, it seems like, oftentimes. And so what I want to do today is I want to recover what Scripture teaches about the sacraments. And we're going to look at two passages to go through baptism and the Lord's Supper. But really what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be pulling from all over and consolidating a lot of things. And so I'm not going to kind of have you flipping through the Bible, but I'm just going to kind of give you the goods of what the sacraments are and why they are. So yeah, what are these sacraments and how do they work? That's basically what we're going to look at today. What are the sacraments and how do they work? Well, they're signs and seals. That's what scripture says. When Paul is talking about what circumcision was, he says that it's a sign and a seal of righteousness that was conferred first to Abraham, even before he took it. Even before he was circumcised, he received the righteousness that it signified. And they're signs and seals of God's promise to his people. And theologians have labeled that the covenant of grace. And that's basically just a way of saying that God has promised that his people will be redeemed. And the fulfillment of that covenant is Jesus. So they're signs and seals of the covenant of grace. And they're how God promises to bring us every spiritual blessing. So we receive them just as we receive the gospel by faith, by trusting in them. So I'm going to go ahead and pray now, and then we'll get into the first passage and talk about baptism. Please pray with me. <coughs> Heavenly Father, this is, um, this is a beautiful day <laughs> because we get to reflect on something that you have given us. We get to reflect on a wonderful gift. We get to reflect on something that you have not made us earn, that you do not um, see this as kind of our response to what you've already done, but Lord, that this is what you do. You bless your people. And so God, I just thank you for that. I thank you that it's not up to our performance. It's not dependent on anything within us. It's not dependent on a feeling. It's not dependent on an experience. 
but that we get to come and trust that we are meeting Christ where you have promised. And so, Lord, I ask that that would help us, that that would, that would kind of bring us an orientation towards what you are doing in our life, what you have promised that you will do to your people, and how you are with us in these promises and in these signs and these seals throughout our entire Christian life, how you are constant, your presence is with us. We thank you for that, Lord. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's talk about baptism. Baptism is a sign and a seal of our union with Christ. A sign and a seal of our union with Christ. You see this very explicitly in Romans 6, verses 1 through 11. Romans 6, verses 1 through 11 is Paul kind of unpacking what it means to be dead to sin and alive to God. And he's trying to kind of show these Roman Christians, here's what it means that you now belong to Christ instead of Adam. You are dead to sin and alive to God. So read with me. Romans 6, 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died to sin or one who has died, has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you see there, all of that united language, into, united, with him, all of that is communicating our union with Christ, our being joined together with him. So this is what happens. When you are trusting Jesus for forgiveness of sins and newness of life, you are united to him. We have a picture of this that's very easy to understand, and it's marriage. You are married to him. You are joined together with him so that what is yours is his, and what is his is yours. So his death is your death. Your sin became his sin. Not that he sinned, but he became sin so that he could put our sin to death in his death. This is what baptism shows us. It's what baptism preaches to us. 
It's a picture of it so that we can remember this beautiful truth of the Christian faith that we have been united to Christ. Specifically, in his death and resurrection, we are united to Christ. This is beautiful. This is the deepest longing of our soul. That we can stand before God and claim righteousness because of Christ. We're baptized and we are actually baptized into his baptism. Think about the baptism of Jesus. So Jesus was being baptized with the baptism of John, which was a baptism of repentance. And John got really weirded out by this. He's like, mm, I don't think we should be doing this because he knew that this was the sinless lamb of God who came to die for the sins of the world. And Jesus says, no, I need to do this to fulfill all righteousness because he was identifying with a sinful people. He was being baptized into our sin. He was being baptized with the wrath of God because of sin. And so he was baptized. And as he was pulled out of the water, the voice of the Father spoke down. And he said, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. This is what happens when you're baptized. It's what happens when you trust in Jesus for forgiveness of sins and newness of life and respond to him and receive that promise in baptism. It is a point in time where you are adopted into the family of God. You're an orphan apart from this. You belong to a wicked, punishing evil father, a child of Satan apart from this. And so this point in time, this baptism event is a way that God puts his name on you. It's a way he says, you belong to me. You are my son. We claim that because he first said it to Christ. And if we are united to Christ, we claim what Christ claims. You are a child of God, and God is pleased in you. So you see that you are baptized into his baptism. Well, okay, how does that work? Why, why baptism? Well, remember, it's a sign and a seal. So a sign is a concrete thing that signifies a future reality, or signifies another reality. It doesn't have to be future. Water is used in baptism because of its properties, because of what it communicates, because of what it is and how we as humans interact with it. Scripture uses water throughout because it's kind of how God stoops down and meets us on our level. And Scripture speaks about water in two different ways that go together, judgment and blessing. So Scripture speaks about water as judgment and you see this as Israel passes through the Red Sea. And actually, this is referred to as the baptism of Israel. They pass through the Red Sea, and Moses is kind of taking a staff, and the waters are receded. And they walk through those waters. 
So they don't actually interact with the water, but they're protected from the water. And then when Egypt and Pharaoh come in pursuit of them, the waters close over them. And that's the baptism of Egypt, but it's a baptism of judgment. It brings death. Why? Well, we're not made to live underwater. It's that basic. Like, water is scary. Water is tumultuous. Water is chaotic. The waters were separated from the land in creation. They were given boundaries to create safety for humans to live and to exist. And this is communicated in baptism, isn't it? If you remember your baptism, or if you see a baptism, people are nervous. I was nervous. Why? Because I'm going under the water. Because I'm depending on somebody to bring me back up out of it so that I can breathe again. Because I know intuitively that my body is tainted with sin and the waters symbolize death. You are baptized into his death. So it's judgment. It shows the need for judgment. But it's also a blessing. You see this in scripture throughout as there is prayers for rain. As rain comes and falls and hits the crops, it's a sign of God's blessing. We talked about Psalm 1 last week, this tree planted by the stream. There is a blessing attribute that water has to it. I want to read you this because I think it'll help us consider water, Um, which might be weird, but it's okay. This is from a novel one of my favorite novels, and it's an old man kind of reminding or remembering different things in his life. And so he's, rem- he's remembering this as he's, as he's kind of narrating it. He says, It reminded me of something I saw early one morning a few years ago as I was walking up to the church. There was a young couple strolling along half a block ahead of me. The sun had come up brilliantly after a heavy rain and the trees were glistening and very wet. On some impulse, plain exuberance, I suppose, the fellow jumped up and caught hold of a branch, and a storm of luminous water came pouring down on the two of them. And they laughed and took off running, the girl sweeping water off her hair and dress as if she were a little little bit disgusted. But she wasn't. It was a beautiful thing to see, like something from a myth. I don't know why I thought of that now, except perhaps it is easy to believe in such moments that water was made primarily for blessing and only secondarily for growing vegetables and doing the wash. It is something ordinary in kind, but exceptional in degree. Water is the element that God has promised to meet us in when we are baptized because of what it represents and signifies. It's pure. It's transparent. It brings refreshment. It cleanses. It washes. It brings life. All of these things are communicated through baptism. And our imagination sometimes get kind of like bored with this. But I know that this is something deeply ingrained into humans because Whenever it rains, our daughters just want to go out into the rain and jump in the puddles, no matter how cold it is or windy. Why? Because they like to see the water. They're fascinated by it. 
There's something that speaks of the purposes of blessing in it that children intuitively know and that we, over time, I think, lose sight of a little bit. But the water is actually the vehicle for something much more profound. It alludes to it. And so as great and as wonderful as baptism is, it's only pointing to and bringing us something that's even better. It's bringing us our union with Christ. And this is why baptism should only happen one time. You should only be baptized once. And I know that that's complicated because different churches will say different things about this. And so don't worry if you have been baptized multiple times. That's okay. Just don't do it again. <laughs> You're, like, if you have been baptized in a Christian church, you are baptized, friend. And here's why that's important. You don't go in and out of Christ. You don't get married to Jesus and then he gets tired of you. And yes, I know experientially sometimes we want to get baptized again because you're like, no, you don't understand. I doubted. I walked away. I rebelled. I backslid. Whatever language you want to use. And so in your experience, it's like, you know what? Yeah, maybe I was married to him, but I filed divorce papers and I took them to the judge. And this is why it's important to know that you don't go in and out of Christ. Because the judge that you took them to is the same judge that you were married to. And he put them in the shredder. You do not go in and out of Christ. It happens one time, and the beauty of that one time, you live your life on, you remember, you go back to, you recall, and it brings you blessing. It's not just a remembering, but by remembering, you are blessed, you are fed, grace comes to you. And this is the nature of how God has always worked. This idea that as we remember something, this fixed point in time in our lives, when you are baptized, it's a fixed point in time where you're like, oh, I remember receiving the grace of God. I remember where my union with Christ was cemented, was sealed. And by remembering it, you are blessed. And it's because of this that when Israel was receiving the law, when they were going into their own covenant at Sinai, at the end of Moses kind of giving them this, he tells them, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and I will bless you. See, God is promising to come to us, to bless us, and it happens as we recall as we remember. And so it goes together. It's not just a remembrance. It's not just a sign. But because it's a sign, it's also a seal. It also joins us. It brings us blessing. And we're reminded of the beauty of what we've received. So the Lord's, the baptism is all about our union with Christ. And it orients us to the reality and the experience of being united to Christ. 
And flowing out of that, we also have communion or fellowship with Christ. And that's what the Lord's Supper brings to us. It's what the Lord's Supper reminds us of and then blesses us through, is our ongoing fellowship with Christ. So I want to read this, um, this passage really quickly. It's a shorter one. And it's something that you're going to be very familiar with. And it's a really cool thing that you're familiar with it because we do this every week. And we say this every week. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup, and after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there is an expectation that this is going to be happening continuously in the life of Christians, that you're coming together, that you are taking the bread and the cup, and that it is representing our fellowship with God is based on Jesus' life lived for me and his death died for me. The bread, as representing the body of Christ, is representative of his righteousness. So when we eat the bread, it's as if we are experiencing again and having the grace of the righteousness of Christ again communicated to us. A continual reminder, hey sinner, you are now a son. And it's his righteousness that keeps you in the family. It's not your righteousness. And in the same way, the wine, the blood of Christ, poured out for us, it signifies the cup of God's wrath, but also the cup of his blessing. Because Jesus drank the cup of wrath and poured out his blood so that we would receive it as blessing. And God continually feeds us with the life and death of Christ as we live. And this is something that um, I think for me personally, and a lot of people that I've talked to, is hard to understand. It's like, yeah, I know we do it every week. And so I think some of that, it's again, it's familiar. And so it kind of becomes like, yeah, this is just something we do. And like, I don't know, why do we do it? Do we have to do it? It's kind of nice. I like doing it every now and then. But one of the really amazing parts about the Lord's Supper is its continuous practice. How it goes with you throughout decades of your life brings you grace and blessing through all of these different seasons. As you take the Lord's Supper week by week by week, you're going through a life that's going to have ups and downs. You're going to have um, different experiences. You're going to probably have a period of joblessness. You will probably have a period of great pain, of agony. You'll probably have a period of great joy and ecstasy. 
You might get married. You might have a child. You might lose a friend, a parent. All of these like wide variety of life and life experiences, the same thing happening every week. God's grace coming to you. God meeting you. The gospel coming to you in these elements and reminding you over and over that God is blessing you, that he's feeding you, and that the life that you're living, you're living in dependence on him, and that he will meet you where he has promised. He's going to meet you in that pain. He's going to meet you in the despair. He's going to meet you in the joy. He's going to meet you in the anxiety and the fear, and he meets you at his table. And this happens on and on, and it's a way where we actually experience and enjoy the union that we have in Christ, and the marriage metaphor works again. When you do something that you love doing with your spouse, it's a celebration. It's an improvement on your union. You're not getting married again, but it's something that expresses that union. It's something that is celebrating it. You're enjoying it. And the Lord's Supper is not saying, oh, you need to be united to Christ again. No, it's saying when you are united to Christ, you enjoy it like this. He continues to bring you grace. And this is why, again, like, you don't need to, like, don't redo your vows every week, married people. That would be bad. Like, if you continuously were like, okay, we need to restart our vows, like, you'd be like, who are you trying to convince that, like, what's going on here? No. You are proclaimed to be united to your spouse. And then you live within that union. You'll share meals. You'll share dates. You come together. You are joined together. You enjoy one another. And this is what's happening at the Lord's table. The Lord is meeting us. He's enjoying us. We are enjoying him. And so baptism gives us the reality and expression of our union with Christ, and the Lord's Supper gives us the reality and expression of our ongoing fellowship within that union. Why Why do we need this? Well, it's because we are dust. It's because what is happening, and this is where I think we've forgotten so much of what happens in these sacraments is that a transcendent reality, the reality of God, the reality of the creator, the reality of the spiritual world is entering into material things. It's breaking into a earth that was created from dust. It's breaking into a people who are made out of dust. And so we need them because we need to be reminded of what has happened. We need to experience God's grace, not just know about it. This is a tasting and a seeing that the Lord is good. And it's the same way that when we hear and believe the gospel, we're united to Christ. When you are baptized, you are united to Christ. When you come to the table, you have fellowship with him. And so this is an encouragement if you haven't yet been baptized, but you are trusting in Jesus, 
you're refusing a great gift. Because baptism isn't about you responding to God's grace. It's God putting his grace on you. And so you should be baptized. And every baptized Christian should take the Lord's Supper because it's what he has prepared for us. It's how he continues to meet us. Do you want to meet God? Come to this table. Meet him. And for all of us, as we are disoriented by life, maybe you're disoriented by what God is doing in your life right now, these sacraments help orient you to his family. It's like, this is what it looks like to walk with me, to depend on me. This is what it looks like to be transformed with a people that bear my name, that testify about my goodness and my love to a dying world. And I think that that is why Jesus tells us, and Paul kind of repeating what Jesus gave him, it's why when he's talking about the Lord's Supper, he says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's visible. This is a witness to the world of a people who depend and love on God, who want to meet him where he has promised to meet us, who want to be oriented to his grace and his love for us in his son. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Um, We thank you that you have given us these gifts. Lord, we, we have neglected them, to be honest. We have confused them, and yet you continue to give them. And so, Lord, even as I think about the inadequacy of handling these sacred truths, of handling your grace, I am reassured, Lord, that you give it to it, an undeserving people, an imperfect people, but that by them we are becoming perfect day by day, week by week. Lord, because it's what you have promised to do. It's what you have promised through your Son to accomplish in all of us and in this world. Lord, we long to see the reality, to experience the reality that these signs point to. And Lord, until that day, we can trust that this is where you meet your people, in your word and in these sacraments. And we come to you, Lord, expectantly. So Lord, meet us this morning. Meet us here in your preached word and in these sacraments, and communicate your love to us and your Son. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.